We're continuing in our, our series this morning, uh, which we've called Reality Check. And the goal is, as we walk through these events leading up to Jesus's crucifixion, uh, that we would recalibrate, that we would recenter. Um, and today, as we look at what we often call the Last Supper, this final meal that Jesus has with the disciples, um, it's, it's in some ways probably the most significant form of recalibration. Uh, this supper that Jesus calls his disciples to and presides over as host um, is, is the Jewish holiday of Passover. And it's important to remember uh, that Passover is not merely a holiday. Okay? There was about seven holidays that the Old Testament requires the Jews to observe. Of those, three of them were pilgrimage holidays, meaning wherever they were in the land of Israel, they were to gather in Jerusalem all men over the age of 13, and their families were to come and celebrate these festivals in Jerusalem. But Passover is the primary and focal holiday. And the reason is because it goes back to the beginning of God taking a people who were merely slaves in Egypt and delivering them, bringing them out, bringing them into covenant, bringing them to the promised land. And so for the Jews, the Passover wasn't just, uh, wasn't just remembering something that happened. Uh, it, was, it was the reorientation around their identity, that they were slaves and that they are now free that they now, by God's grace and power, have become his people. There is no Israel without the Passover. Okay? And so, so this was uh, a holiday to reflect and remember who they were and who God is and what he's done, and it was the foundation of their relationship with God. So it's very appropriate that Jesus takes this occasion, reinterprets the pieces, the facets of a traditional Passover meal, um, and in doing so, gives us our own method of reorientation, our own remembrance that's just as significant. Now, we call our participation or our practice uh, of doing what Jesus told us to at the Last Supper, communion or the Eucharist, just, which just means gratitude, um, or, or sometimes the Lord's table. But when we partake of it, as often as we do, Jesus tells us to do it in remembrance of him. But we're not just remembering the cross. We're not just reflecting on an event. Like the Jews, we are walking through who we are because of what God has done that we were slaves and have now been set free, that we were as dead and are now alive, uh, that we are now, by God's own choosing and action, part of his family. And so as we look at this passage today, I just, I just want to talk about effectively um, the, the feast the feast that God has invited people to, the place that he and the place that we play uh, in that feast. Uh, and it's just four simple thoughts this morning. If you would, go ahead and open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. 
Now, if you're uh, visiting this morning and you didn't bring a Bible in the back of the pew nearby, you will find one. You can use the index at the front to find the New Testament book of the Gospel of Mark. And again, we're going to be in chapter 14. Picking up here in verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room? where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large room, furnished and ready, there prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it was written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And they were eating. And he took bread after blessing it and broke it and gave it to them and said, Take this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, would you help us this morning? As we look at this word and as we remember the remembrance that you gave us, Lord, this practice of communion, as we reflect on the new Passover, Lord, on the new exodus accomplished by Jesus Christ and our place in it, would you just help us to establish our identity in you? Would you help us to course correct the places uh, where we are striving to find out who we are? Would you help us to remember the orientation of our relationship with you? And would you help us to enter into and to enjoy the feast that you have laid for us in Christ? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so the story begins probably as every other story of this weekend in history in Jerusalem begins with preparations for the Passover. As I mentioned, this is one of the pilgrimage festivals. So Jews from not just all over Israel, but from all over the scattered Roman Empire would come into the city. The city would be filled to the brim with pilgrims, all looking for places where they could host the Passover. Now, if you go back to the book of Exodus, you will see uh, all of the things that, uh, that this feast entailed. You had to gather at least 10 people. 
There was the killing of a lamb. Um, the menu was already laid out, and every item had significance. And they all celebrated it on the same day at sunset. And so here, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, all right, what's the plan? You've brought us to Jerusalem. What's the plan? And he gives them relatively cryptic instructions. In fact, they're so generic in this, it's a little bit head-scratching on how this would have even worked. He doesn't give them an address. He doesn't give them an area of the city. He just says, go into the city and you'll see a man carrying a pitcher of water. Okay. Now, there's really two possibilities here. Uh, one is that all of this is divinely orchestrated, sovereignly set up, uh, and that Jesus, just with his ability to know well beyond human knowledge, just, has, uh, just leans into almost prophetically this reality. The other possibility is that he has prearranged plans, okay? That he's made them, and uh, if that's the case, then the reason this is so cryptic is because it's secret. And you may remember uh, that Jesus' life is uh, suspect right now. There are those in the highest authorities of leadership who are trying to kill him. And, as Jesus very wells, well knows, one of his own has already accepted a contract on his life. Judas has already been paid and is looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. And so, maybe here, he plans this last minute and without any help and does it quick, uh, uh, quietly uh, and secretively uh, so that there can be no interference in this meal. There comes a time, as Jesus says in the passage as we read it, the, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed just as it was written of him. This is the plan. Jesus is going to walk through it step by step without hesitation. He will be turned over to the authorities later in this very night that they celebrate Passover, but not here. There's something that must happen first. And so Jesus makes arrangements beforehand, or maybe God miraculously makes arrangements beforehand, um, but here they come and they set the table. Now the thing I want you to notice here is that throughout this, uh, Jesus operates as host. Now, Passover was a family celebration. If your family extended, wasn't large enough for a 10-person uh, feast, then you were to invite your neighbors to get it up above that number. Um, but here it is Jesus who sits at the table as host. It's Jesus who takes the role of, uh, of the leader of the ceremony, who stands up and speaks who leads people in the psalms that were spoken during this, who walk through the Passover story, who pray for and give thanks for the food. Jesus takes that entire role. He sits at the head of the table. He breaks the bread. He passes it around. He functions as the host. And like I said, this is no mere Passover meal, but Jesus here takes the most significant annual happening of the Jews and makes it about himself. In fact, where Jesus does open his mouth here and talk in the meal, he doesn't follow the script at all. Instead, he provides a new script. He takes the symbols of a historical happening for Israel and makes it about his present tense person. He reinterprets 
uh, reinterprets and reinvigorates the symbolism and makes it about himself. And so again, like I said, it is appropriate for us this morning to reflect on the invitation that is implied in this Last Supper. And the first thing, again, I want you to notice here is that God operates as host. What is a feast? What is a meal? I mean, obviously, it's about nourishment, uh, but why don't we, even at this point in technology, why haven't we just settled for an IV, right? So we can just keep about our business and go about our ways. Why is it, and maybe I'm the only one, why is it that I always feel awkward when I eat by myself? I'm always reminded of that line uh, from The Office where, where Andy says that he, after he broke up his, with his girlfriend, ate an entire pizza over the sink like a rat, right? <laughs> have, you, have you ever done that? Have you ever felt awkward about eating alone? There is a built-in sensibility that meals are not just about nourishment but relationship. There's something that we do together. In fact, the New Testament tells the church this is one of the things we are supposed to do. It tells us in Acts chapter 2 that the early church devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and to fellowship. That was one of the things that they said this is a necessity. This is what it means to be the church. This is what it means to be a Christian. It means to sit at the table together and eat. And remember, God ordained the Passover. Jesus institutes communion. These are divinely chosen pictures for a purpose. In fact, as you look at the entire New Testament, and the prophets as well, one of the primary ways God explains what he's about in the world we live in is with the imagery of a feast. In Isaiah it says, come and eat bread Without gold, leave your money at home, he says. Come and eat and be nourished. He asks, he says, why do you spend your time eating things that do not satisfy? He gives the invitation. Jesus' first wedding, or excuse me, his first miracle, the mark of the beginning of his public ministry is at a wedding where he takes a wedding that's running out of wine and he miraculously turns water into wine so that the festivities can continue. He identifies himself as the bridegroom following that wedding uh, illustrations. One of his parables, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a feast that a man prepared for his son. When we get to the New Testament, uh, the end of the New Testament in the book of Revelation, we get to the consummation of all things. When Jesus returns, what is it that he sets up? Revelation 19 tells us, rejoice for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come. God desires to have a relationship with us. Jesus speaks to a church that's become distant from him in the book of Revelation. And he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone will open the door and let me in, I will come in and I will dine with him, and so will my Father. Ultimately, communion as well as Passover, is about God's desire to have a relationship with us. Now, maybe, maybe you find a similar desire in yourself, that you desire to have a relationship with God. Now, maybe you don't, 
I would suggest to you that there is a longing inside you that you have not yet labeled that is actually that. There is a part of all of us that longs to be in proper connection with the God who created us. It's just part of our life. And we may look for that connection in other ways. We may find dissatisfaction and not know why. But ultimately, we were built to know the God who made us. That's how we were designed. The thing I want to show you here, though, is when Jesus goes about this, Jesus is the host of this feast and not us. In fact, Jesus is the one who does all of the preparing and all of the inviting. And if you're a stickler, you go, wait a minute, he sends the disciples to prepare. And that's true, right? He sends two men ahead. He sends them to set up and literally to prepare. But when you reread this story, look with me again. It's clear that the preparation begins with Jesus and not with the disciples. Look again at verse 12. On the first day of the unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Now, Mark begins the conversation there, but Luke John and Matthew all begin with Jesus saying, go and prepare the Passover. Mark picks up in the middle of the conversation here and they go, in Jerusalem? On the day of Passover, you want us to find a place for this feast? Right? The idea of them asking here for direction uh, is because they don't have a plan. Jesus does. He has pre-ordered, pre-set up, and they just have to walk through the steps. Like I said, as we continue on here, it's Jesus who presides as host. Now, Jesus has no problem attending other people's houses for dinner. We see that regularly. He goes to Zacchaeus' house, and he even books the appointment himself. He finds Zacchaeus, oddly, in a tree. He says, hey, you need to come down and take me to lunch. He sits at a well in Samaria, and a woman comes, and he says... Can you give me something to drink? Right? He consistently puts himself in a place of needing other people, which is fascinating when you remember that he is the God that needs nothing. However, every time we find him in a house, it doesn't matter if it's a party that Matthew flew, uh, threw for all of his tax collector friends, or if it's Zacchaeus' household, we always find Jesus stepping in and taking over becoming the host. But no place is that clearer than here, where he takes the role of the patriarch, of the father of the family, where he enters in and leads people here. And the truth is, that is always the way it is with God. I think many of us, especially if you don't grow up in the church, we assume that if we, went out, if we want a relationship with the divine, we have to go out and find it. If we want to find whatever it is that's lacking in ourselves, we've got to discover it. In fact, many of us are bent to think, all right, I need to invite God into my life. And I'm not actually bothered by that language. I would suggest to you uh, that that is uh, biblical language. Remember what I just read out of the book of Revelation? Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and anyone who opens the door unto me, that's fine. The question is, though, where does it begin? Yes, the disciples lay the table here. They set up for the meal. But why? Because Jesus has already set up their setup. And it is always this way. 
when everything first goes wrong in the Bible, when Adam eats of the tree, when Eve eats of the tree, when suddenly, where there was relationship, fellowship, communion, unity, community with God, suddenly it's broken. Adam and Eve know that they've sinned. They know that the relationship is broken. They suddenly feel very different about God and about one another. Do they call for God? Do they go looking for him? No, actually, God is the one who takes the first step, and even though they hide, he finds them. Even when God asks them, why are you hiding? They don't respond. So he asks them clearer, did you eat of the tree? And Adam blames instead of confessing. Right? It is God who is the active driver there. He is the initiator. Now, Adam and Eve have tried to solve their own problems. They've recognized suddenly that they're naked, and with that nakedness suddenly comes a sense of shame. So they make a covering out of fig leaves, itchy, scratchy, won't-do-the-trick fig leaves. And even that, God steps in and he takes an animal, he takes its life, and he clothes them in skins. God is the active player there. It's true with the Passover as well. God does not deliver Israel because they have found him. He is the one who intervenes. And you go, well, doesn't it say in the opening chapters of Exodus that they heard their cries? Absolutely. But the story begins before that, doesn't it? You see, all the way back in Genesis 15, God is speaking to an ancestor of the Jews, a man named Abraham, and he says, Abraham, a time is coming where your family is going to spend 400 years in Egypt, and they're going to be enslaved, but I will come with a mighty hand, and I will bring them out, and I will bring them to this land. And you go, well, but doesn't it start with Abraham? Yes, but where does Abraham's story start? Not in the land that we call Israel, not in the land of Canaan, but in Ur of the Chaldees, worshiping false gods. And suddenly God just speaks to Abraham and says, Abraham, come to a land that I will show you. When he comes to Israel, he says, come to a land that I have prepared for you. God initiates and we respond. God plans and executes that plan. In fact, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, when things are broken, we don't find Adam and Eve going, look, God, I know we really messed up. I've got a plan to make things right. What about this? Instead, God, in the midst of telling them about the consequence of their sins, death and the curse and sorrow, all of those things, he says, but I'm going to send a redeemer. But I'm going to bring about salvation. I'm going to carry out a solution. And Jesus is the climax of that story. Thousands of years in the telling of God moving towards the sending of Jesus Christ. Don't ever forget that God's most significant and defining action, according to the Bible, uses that word sent. God sent his son. God is the initiator. Now, this is tremendously good news because just think about it logically for a second. If there really is a distance between the infinite and the finite, if there really is a distance between the perfection of God and wherever we are as human beings, envisioning a way that we can reach it, 
that we can attain to it seems like an impasse. But would it be as hard for the infinite God to reach down to us? Now, that doesn't seem impossible at all. And in fact, that's exactly what God has done in Jesus Christ before you recognized your longing, before you labeled it as a lack of God. God was at work to fix that problem. That's who he is. That's how he's designed. Like Jesus at the feast here, he has prepared and set the table and he presides over it as host. So if you're here this morning and you're thinking, whether you feel like you not, have not yet started a relationship with God or if you've had one for a while and you're thinking, all right, I have to take the first step. All right, I have to go looking for God. I, maybe you would identify this morning as a seeker. You're looking for something and you, you're agnostic at the moment. You don't know what it is. Or maybe you've been a Christian a long time. But this propensity to feel like we have to be the one who knocks. This propensity to feel like we have to somehow lay out a spread for God and say, okay, come on in, is a continuous thing. Every time in your life you think, all right, what do I need to do to fix things with God? Every time in your life you think to yourself, all right, how can I make God's life more real to me, more present? You're making a small but very important mistake. In the Bible, it's not God who's missing. It's not God who's lost. We are the lost ones. It's God who chases after us. It's God who, over the course of the Old Testament history, is moving towards, again, providing for this need, laying the table, executing his plans. And so the, the formula is very simple. God initiates and we respond. But that difference is not just one of chronology. It completely changes the way you think about things. Tell me, what is the difference between these two prayers? One that says, God, if you're there, I can't find you. And the one that says, God, I know you're there. Show yourself. What is the difference between the person who says, God, why can't I see you in my life? And assumes it's because God is absent. And the person who says, God, why can't I see you in my life? And assumes it's because we're blind. The other thing is, we should take this as an encouragement. Maybe you can look at yourself and honestly recognize you have a strong and regularly growing desire to be with God. There is a stronger desire at work. And that's God's desire to be with you. It's pre-existing. When we desire a relationship from God, it is a response to the desire for relationship with us that he has. He is the host. And so we see Jesus operate in this way. And I want you to notice as well that Jesus doesn't just operate as host, but this is where things get a little bit weird. He also operates as feast. Look at what happens here in verse 22. As they were eating, he took the bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, said, Take, this is my body. He takes the food, the supper of the dinner, 
And he says, partake of me. Eat of me. Now, generally, however your diet is laid out, the role of host and dinner is different. Even though we can imagine cannibals, we don't generally imagine self-sacrificing cannibals that cook themselves up and offer themselves. And remember two things. One, Passover already has a meaning. This feast is looking backwards. It has significance to everyone at this table. And Jesus steps in and takes a thousand-plus-year-old practice, and he says, forget that for a minute. This is about me. And again, this is consistent with Jesus' ministry. He tells the religious leaders, he says, you search the scriptures, the Old Testament, for in them you think there is life. Right? Put that in food terms. You're opening the Bible looking for nourishment. He says, but it is they that testify of me. And I want to remind you that Jesus is a 30-some-old man who doesn't own a home or have a job, an itinerant preacher in Israel, and he takes 4,000 years of writings, and he says, it's all about me. Can you imagine somebody doing the same today to take an ancient book that somebody revered and say, I am the main character of that story? We usually institutionalize those people. But more significantly here, Jesus takes the Passover and he says, all of that was just a picture and I am the fulfillment. All of that was just the shadow and I am the reality. And on top of that, let me remind you that not only does he hijack Passover here, but he does it in an audience of Jews who have very strict dietary codes. Now, it doesn't have to be... uh, you know, too much stricter than ours for us to recognize that eating human beings is not generally on the menu. But he's going to go on in a second and he's going to say, this cup, the one that you're all drinking from, this is my blood. Remember, the Jews drain their meat of the blood, pour it out upon the ground, for anyone who tastes, partakes of the blood, will surely die. The blood is the essence of life. They've been trained through generation after generation to keep their distance from blood. And Jesus steps in. You know, there's an occasion in John chapter 6 where Jesus is talking about these same things, not just with his disciples in a private room, but with a crowd. And he says to the entire crowd, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part with me. And this whole audience of people who have seen Jesus do miracles of people who have been impacted by his teaching, who have literally followed him out into the wilderness just to hear him teach. Just yesterday, they hear those words and they go, I'm out. Whatever that means, it's not good. Jesus here says something profound, something disturbing, but beneath that is a deeper truth that's most important. What is the feast that God has invited us to? What does he lay on the table? It's himself. God in the flesh offers himself. What do we most need from God? Him. 
What is the nourishment that we need? I think some of the ways that we think about a relationship with God is that a relationship with God gets us X or Y. If we can get in with God, then he'll solve this problem or he'll meet this need or he'll satisfy this longing. And the truth is, The Bible is full of claims that God does just that, that he is a caretaker, that he is a provider, that he is like a loving father that takes care of your needs. Jesus says, don't worry about what you eat, what you drink, or the clothing that you put on, or where you're going to sleep at night. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. But we need to understand that those are the fringe benefits of the feast. They're implications of these things, but what we most need and what God most offers is himself. In Christianity, we talk about the gospel, the good news. John Piper put out a book years and years ago called God is the Gospel. That is the good news. What God offers us is not just an escape from hell or deliverance for our sins. What he offers us is himself. And the meaning was the same in Passover. God doesn't step into Egypt and deliver them from this tyrannical ruler and all of these slave owners and then say, go, be free, do what you want. Actually, he takes the same language of slavery and he says, I've set you free so that you can belong to me. He takes them out to bring them in. When Jesus is tempted by the devil in the wilderness at the beginning of Mark, One of the things that he's tempted to do is to take the stones around him after 40 days of not eating and turn them into bread. Satan says, look, since you're the son of God, command these stones and make them bread. And Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy. He says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. But now we find it's not just the words of God, but the living word of God. The word become flesh that nourishes us, that we partake of, that we need. Now, once again, the Bible says that we should cast our cares upon the Lord because he cares for us. You have real needs, and it's appropriate to bring those before God. But when we make God a means to an end, we try and set the wrong feast. We come to the feast and we go, okay, what I want is success. What I want is safety and security as I define it. What I want is for you to, uh, you know, accomplish my goals. There's a significant difference between the gospel and a genie. What God offers us, what we most need is himself, what we most need for nourishment. And you might go, well, that's easy for you to say, but you don't know how hard things are right now. Paul did. Paul's life was literally just out of the frying pan and into the fire and then out of the fire and whatever's supposed to follow the fire. He knew what it was like to be imprisoned. He knew what it was like to be starving. He knew what it was like to be cast out upon the elements and have no place to sleep. He knew what it was like to be suspected of crimes, to be hated, to be beat by the authorities. He knew what it was like to be stoned to death and survive it. He knew what it was like to not know what tomorrow entailed. In fact, he knew the depths of depression that can come alongside those things. He says in the opening chapter of 2 Corinthians, 
He says, things got so hard while we were in Ephesus, I despaired of life itself. Yes, I even assumed that the sentence of death was hanging over me. Like you could just see a countdown clock counting down to zero above his head as he walked around on his life. And yet that same Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that I've become convinced that sword nor persecution nor the powers or principalities, the things that are, nor death itself can separate us from what? From the love of God. The one thing the world couldn't take from him was the only thing he needed. He knew what it was like when Jesus said, this is my body. Take, eat. When we partake of communion, when we remember what Jesus has done, the sacrifice is significant. In fact, we have to talk about that this morning. But the bread is a bloodless sacrifice. Its primary element in its symbolism is nourishment. Right? In, in almost all cultures, worldwide, some form of bread has been the way that we just talk about food. That's why Jesus teaches us to pray, give us our daily bread. It doesn't mean that you can't have, you know, a, a bowl of something else. Bread is just a stand-in for food, for nourishment. What we do in communion is both remember that Jesus is what we need most. It's our most essential, our most basic of needs. And that we nourish ourselves by partaking of him. I said earlier that God is the one who's seeking. God is clearly the one who initiates. He's set the table and he's offering himself. But look at the words of Jesus here in verse 22. He said, take this is my body. Take there is an imperative verb. It's a command. In the other passages, it says take and eat. In other words, God isn't going to force feed us himself. There's a taking to do. And as Christians, this isn't just something we do when we partake of communion. It is everything we do. Because, as we saw earlier, the whole Bible is about Jesus. When we read it and we look for him and come to understand who he is, it nourishes us. When somebody in the body of Christ comes to us and hears our prayers, embraces us, maybe in a few months, you know, uh, prays for us, when we meet one another's needs, we manifest the provision of Christ. When we sing songs, we remind ourselves, it says in Colossians, sing songs to one another. We remind ourselves of the nourishment available in Christ. Every one of those is an offer. But you still have to eat it. You have to take it. You have to chew on it. You have to swallow it. You have to let it become a part of you. You have to let it nourish you. And the reason why we devote our time in this church to connecting our lives with the gospel is, although it is very simple, Christ died for you. The implications of that, the depths of that, is almost inexhaustible. 
what it means in this difficult relationship with your sibling, how it manifests when you wake up in the middle of the night and find yourself having a panic attack, experiencing your own weakness to overcome things you no longer want to do because you know they are no good. In every one of those places, God has just laid a feast. In Psalm 23, the shepherd psalm, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. There's a line at the end of it, and it says that God has prepared a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Right? David is in the midst of hostility, literally running for his life, and he sees a feast laid out right on, you know, the battlefield. Even there, in the darkest parts of your life, God is extending himself and saying, take and eat. Again, God is the gospel. Learning who he is as father uh, is part of the meaning of our need for a father. Learning who he is as provider is part of, our, of the meaning of us needing provision. Learning that he's a very present help in times of trouble is part of the trouble. The same God who planned and prepared the feast and set the table he knows what's going on in the room. He knows what's there. The offering stands because it's what we need most. So Jesus is the host. Jesus is the feast. He's also the price of admission. And this is significant. As the feast is getting started here, look at the guest roster of who's sitting around here. Jesus and his disciples, and despite da Vinci's famous painting, it's probably not just the 12 and Jesus. It's probably a larger group than that. But they are people who believe in him and know him. But look at what it says here in verse 17. When it was evening, he came with the 12, and as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me one who's eating with me. Now remember, Jesus, Jesus is in on Judas's plot. He lays it out right here. In fact, in John, he very intimately turns to Judas in the middle of this dinner and says, go do what you have to do. He knows. And here he breaks bread. He makes the same offer to Judas that he makes to the other disciples. He sets the feast for them, and it's not just one bad apple. What about the rest of those in attendance of the feast? As we'll see next week, he says, yes, one of you is going to betray, you, but betray me, but you're all going to deny me. When it says here, Look there at verse 19. They began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, is it I? That phrase there in the Greek is pretty strong. It implies a negative. Effect effectively, everyone says, it couldn't be me, is it? You know it's not me, right? Their sorrow here is not probably from their concern that they might be the one. It's their concern that Jesus might be suspicious of them. And after dinner, as he goes out in the garden, he says, he says, you're all going to leave me. 
You're all going to run away. I'm going to be left alone when I'm arrested. And they all deny it, and Peter the most adamantly, and he says, even if all of these other jokes deny you, I will not. And again, he has an intimate conversation. He says, Peter, before the sun comes up, you're going to do it three times. Explicitly deny that you know me. And even for the 12, uh, notice what it says when he gives the cup, verse 24. He said to them, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Uh, Sorry, before that. He said, take, this is my body, verse 23. And he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. That word all continues to reverberate through what happens next. So first they all drink of it then they all with one accord say it's not going to be us and then they all forsake him. The feast that is set here, the invitations that go out in the mail are not addressed to the deserving. They haven't earned a seat at the table. This feast is laid as a feast of grace and it is always that way. That's the way that God is. When we partake of God's goodness, we do it because he is good, not because we are. When we're invited into a relationship, again, that stems from God's initiation. Why? Because we're such great people? No. Why? Because he needs us? No. He created us for us, to love us, so that we may enjoy him. And so here... Jesus lays this feast knowing there's no faithfulness to be found at the table. And he breaks the bread and he passes it around, take and eat. He passes the cup. And this is is amazing. When Jesus tells one of his parables about what he's come to do in the kingdom of God, the parable is about this feast And a man on behalf of his son sends out invitations and everybody gives excuses, bad excuses for not coming. And he goes, well, there's going to be a feast anyways. So he sends his servants. He says, just start knocking on doors. Invite everyone. And so they do that. And they come back and they go, the guest list is still pretty small. And he says, go out into the highways and hedges and find anyone you can. When was the last time one of your guests came from a highway or a hedge? right? It's, it's all the way out there. There's no, uh, no reason. The invitation is an open one. You don't have to bring anything. It's not a potluck. But that doesn't mean it comes without cost. Again, there is something that has separated us from God. We feel that distance, not because God is distant. He's right here. He's right present. He's completely accessible. The distance is caused by the distance of sin, by the thing that's gone wrong in humanity, uh, and that sin inevitably and totally leads to death because it cuts us off from the one who is life. And so Jesus hosts an invitation feast, invites people to the table, lays it with himself, but he also bears the cost. Grace is a gift, but it is not cheap. 
It's free to us, but it came at great cost. Notice again what Jesus says in verse 24. He said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. If you've learned how to meditate on scripture, how to take something and to draw out its truths and its goodness, this is the verse you should take home with you. There's so much there. This is my blood of the covenant. See, a covenant was always sealed in blood. There was always a cost. Usually it was an animal cost in the Old Testament. Relationship with God throughout the Old Testament was sustained by sacrifice. And not because God was hungry, not because he rejoiced in death, just the opposite, because there already was death in the camp. And the sacrifice recognized that, and the blood pointed to that. But it also pointed forward to Jesus. And at the Passover, you may remember in Exodus, when the angel of, the death, angel of death comes into Egypt, those who are spared are those who take blood from a lamb and put it over their doorpost. Have you ever thought about that before? I mean, just, just stop and think. Stop thinking about Jesus and go all the way back and ask yourself this question. Here we have a clear category of oppressor and victim, of slave masters and slaves. Have you read the plagues leading up to this one? God is constantly making division between one and the other. All of the cows in the Egyptians' fields die from the hail, but all of the Israelites are spared. Over and over and over again. But when it comes to the Passover, only thing that distinguishes the Jews from the Egyptians, the living from the dead, is blood. Why? Because they were victims, but they weren't sinless. If death was going to be present, if justice was going to fall on Egypt, and this is the great conundrum of human life, what if God really is just? What will he do with us? You can make your excuses. You can try and line yourself in the ro self up in the roster of righteousness and go, there's so many people before me. For God to be truly and completely just, he must take sin seriously. And God's amazing and incredible plan was to bring total justice on the shoulders of innocence. And you go, well, that doesn't seem very just. In fact, there are still those who complain about the cross of Christ as if it's some sort of child abuse. As if God just went, you know what, I really love people, so I'm going to punish you instead. But that's to misunderstand who Jesus is. Jesus is God. And the truth is, forgiveness in all of your relationships, when it happens, always comes at a cost. Forgiveness literally means to no longer place that cost on the other party, but to take it upon yourself. If I walk into your small studio apartment, lit by one lamp, because for some reason we don't build lights into apartments anymore, and I knock it over. Forgiveness means either that you live without light or you buy a new lamp, right? You can rightly and, and do this if I knock over your lamp. You can ask me to pay. But if you say, no, that's all right, I'll take care of it, there's suddenly a cost in the room. Sin always creates a cost. It always creates a distance. And so when God forgives, it comes at a cost. He takes that cost upon himself. 
this new covenant, this new relationship you have with God. You didn't pay the cost to get here. It's given freely, but it's still sealed in blood. In fact, when he says here, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many, that closing language which is poured out for many comes from Isaiah 53, I believe verse 12. When God promises the provision of a suffering servant who would die not for his own sins, but would suffer on behalf of the many, whose blood would be poured out for the many, who would bring forgiveness to the many. But it comes at tremendous cost. But again, any time we come to God, we either come by the blood of Christ or we haven't actually entered in at all. Hebrews tells us that when we pray, we can now boldly enter into the throne room of grace. And I love that imagery. Imagine that your father was someone powerful. He's got an office where you have to make appointments three months out. When he says yes to things, it changes things. But he's just your dad. You just walk in and ask. That's the idea of boldly entering in, right? But why are we bold? Is it because we're so perfect? Is it because we finally figured this whole thing out? Is it because we've been faithful to do the things God asked us to do this week? No, it's because we're covered by the blood. Fully and completely forgiven. Wrapped in the righteousness of the one true perfect human the very Son of God. And so we know that all of those things that are real, all those things that you feel, all those things that you should confess, we know that none of them has the power to separate you from God now. And so we come boldly, but tremendously humbly. And that's the point. When we partake of communion, we remember the cost that it came from, and we remember that we didn't pay it that it was paid on our behalf. And the last thing we see here, we see Jesus operating as host at the feast. He is the feast itself. He pays the price of admission. But I also want you to notice that he's the hope. Look at how he finishes this in verse 25. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Now, there's at least a possibility here that this delay that Jesus implies, this period where he's going to abstain from wine, is just speaking of the crucifixion itself. In fact, when Jesus does raise from the dead and appears to the disciples, it says that he ate and drank. It doesn't say that he drank wine. Uh, but it may be here that he's just recognizing, all right, the festivities are over. Now the work begins. But it seems more likely to me that this abstinence and this pushing for the kingdom of God is not talking about the inaugurated kingdom of God that comes with the resurrection. The kingdom is open for business. It's expanding and changing lives. But the consummated kingdom of God when Jesus returns. Okay, when everything is set right. When God is on the throne and when his people dwell with him. Okay. In fact, when we talk about coming to the feast... Or when we talk about coming to the table, 
the only reason we partake of this is because the work is not yet finished. The only reason we do this in remembrance of Jesus is because he's not yet here. And even when we talk about finding satisfaction in God because God is the gospel, all we get in this life is a foretaste. All we get is a little apartive, right? It's preparation, the, the marriage supper of the Lamb, the real feast, the feast to all feast point, that's still to come. But I love this because just think of the image of this. Remember that wine in the Bible is a way of celebration. And Jesus basically says, I'm going to hold off on the celebration until I can celebrate with you fully and completely, without distance, without spot or blemish, without unmet longing, without pain or suffering or tears. In Hebrews, it says that Jesus endured the shame of the cross for the joy that was set before him. But now we find out what that joy is. It's to be present with us. When we take communion, we look back. Christ died. But we also look forward. In 1 Corinthians, Jesus, or Paul tells us that every time we partake of communion, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so we eat today because we look forward to the day where we will eat. We enjoy God today because we look forward to the day that we will enjoy God fully and completely, without hindrance or dissatisfaction or distraction. Listen, heaven is such a popular concept in the modern mind, it's always important to remind ourselves what makes Christianity's view of heaven unique. And it's this. It's that what makes heaven, heaven, is that God dwells in the midst of his people. Again, God is the gospel. That is the good thing he's offered. And what he's about and what he will finally complete is a feast that's eternal and eternally satisfying. But it won't just be because it'll be the best vintage wine on the table or the choicest cuts of meat that were completely harvested without the death of an animal, or any of these things, it will be his presence. The fellowship of God is the fellowship that every meal you have, whether that friend is missing or seated at the table, points to. Whether you experience in lack and longing, or you experience, again, that, that first taste, that foretaste of what God has designed. And so when we face hard things in our life, when we recognize the lack and the longing, did you know that describes the real condition? Sometimes I think we think as Christians, if I really had this all locked down, I would be content. Foolishness. Listen to Paul's words about the work of the Holy Spirit. He says in Romans chapter 8, that we all, with all of creation, are groaning awaiting the redemption of the sons of God. That longing, that sense that says, 
come Lord Jesus, that sense that says things are not as they should be, that sense that says this is unjust, this is death and destruction, this is incomplete, this is not as it should be, should always be followed by an amen. But that doesn't mean it's not as it will be, or it doesn't mean that it won't be what it should be. And again, if I can use just a trite illustration, when you decide to swing through a fast food joint on the way home before dinner, it says something about the lack of anticipation you have for the meal to come. I hope I'm not outing any of you spouses who are afraid of their spouses cooking, uh, but, but you all know that there are those meals that you just won't be distracted from enjoying to their full depth. Sometimes it's okay to leave the longing. Sometimes it's okay to not try and fill in the void for now and just reorient yourselves and say with the early church, come Lord Jesus. There's a feast that satisfies. God has sent out invitations. He's put himself on the menu and he's paid the price of admission. And it's a feast worth waiting for. Let's pray. What a gift, Lord. What a good thing that you offer us in your Son. Christ, our Passover. And it's not just because you stay the hand of death in our lives, Lord. It's that you invite us in to fellowship, to relationship with you, to love with the God who is love. And I just pray, Lord, over all of these missteps we make, Lord, of striving to find you as if you were hidden, of trying to just settle for you to give us the things that we want to eat, the things that we uh, feel we need for nourishment. The mistake, Lord, of, uh, of seeking to convince you to let us in by us paying the cost, presenting you our righteousness, which is just as filthy rags. Or stepping in the role of judge and condemning other people so that we seem more righteous to ourselves. or even rejecting what you have done as if it wasn't costly and saying, no, I'm sufficient on my own. I don't need the blood of Christ. And finally, Lord, I just, I just pray for this, this misstep that, that looks for this life as if we could truly find satisfaction before Jesus returns. You abstain from the cup until you can drink it with us in the kingdom of God. Let us not be surprised if every cup we drink falls short till then. Let every time we're dissatisfied, even in the good things, Lord, where we have the best dinner, or the best friends, or the best family, and yet it just doesn't hit the mark. 
Let us use that to look forward in longing to the day when all our needs will be met permanently and totally in you. Christ, you are our Passover. You are our deliverance. You give us a new identity. You are the life that sustains us and will complete us. Help us to take and eat. Pray all these things today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As we respond and worship this morning, let's just sing and proclaim the truths of who God is.